It is great seeing all of you on the Lord's Day today, and I am excited about this message today called the Prayer of Manasseh. This is a standalone sermon. This is, has nothing to do with the series that I just completed. It has nothing to do with the series that I'm about to start next week. Uh, this is just a sermon that has been on my heart. It's been on my heart for a while, and I've just kind of had it tucked away, and I've been looking for an opportunity to preach it, and uh, today is, uh, today's that day. Uh, let me just say, um, I guess just, a, uh, I guess just a, a, a quick word about the series that I'm going to start next week from 1 John. Very excited about that series also. It's been a long time since I preached through the book of 1 John. Uh, but the title of that series is going to be Assured. Assured. There's a lot of things that the Lord assures us about. And uh, we find all of those, many of those in 1 John. Uh, today I want to talk to you about prayer. I want to talk to you about prayer. Prayer is extremely important. I hope that you pray every single day. I hope that prayer is something that is a natural routine of your life. Um, and one of the ways that we learn how to pray, and I find that a lot of Christians, Christians who have who've been believers for a long time, don't have regular prayer. They don't have routine prayer, and they don't have prayer just you know of of, of depth in their life. And one of the ways that we learn how to pray is uh, we listen to the prayers of others, and we learn from other people who model prayer for us. And one of the best ways that we can do that is look at some of the prayers in Scripture. There are a lot of prayers that are recorded in the Bible, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. We have Actually, we have one of the prayers that Jesus prayed, a very long, extensive prayer in John chapter 17. In uh, the Old Testament, we have a lot of different prayers that people prayed. Some of them were short. Some of them were a little bit a little bit longer. Today, I want to talk to you about a certain type of prayer, a certain type of prayer that, that God answers. How many of you want God to answer your prayers? I mean, obviously, that's why we pray. That's why we ask God for certain things. That's why we take certain burdens to Him, because we have things that are on our mind, and we want to kind of put them on God's mind, and we want the Lord to do something for us, or we want God to bless us in a certain type of way. That's, that's, that's why we pray. Well, today I want to talk to you about a certain type of prayer that God will answer. And the interesting thing... Interesting thing that we're going to see today, and I just pray that this is such an encouragement to you. We're going to see how this type of prayer can be prayed by the worst type of individuals. So don't miss that as we look at this prayer of Manasseh. You can open your copy of God's Word to 2 Kings chapter 21. I'm going to read some verses there. I'm also going to read some verses in several other places as well as we look at this prayer of Manasseh. Before we, before we look at his prayer, I want to kind of give you some context. This is one of the hard things about doing a standalone sermon is that we're not building on the one from previous weeks and we're not looking at, we're not going to be, we're not going to be uh, setting a block for what we're going to be doing the next week. But Manasseh, likely you've never heard of him, Manasseh was a king in Judah during a period of Old Testament history called the Divided Kingdom. There were 42 kings over God's people in the Old Testament. There, there were three kings in what we call the United Monarchy. And uh, you probably know who some of those kings were. 
Saul, who was the very first king, David, whom it seems like that we talk about a lot, and then Solomon, who obviously we have Proverbs that were written by him. Where it starts to get a little murky, where we kind of lose track over who some of these kings are, is whenever, uh, whenever the kingdom divides between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south, and we call that the divided monarchy, there's 39 kings. 19 of those kings were in the northern portion of, of, the, of the, the northern kingdom, and uh, they were all bad, every single one of them. You can probably think of in your mind who the worst king of the northern kingdom, the worst king of Israel was. You can probably think in your mind who, who that was. What do you, who do you think it was? Ahab. Ahab was the worst king, his wife Jezebel, worst ever. But they were all bad, every single one of them. If you go through 1 Kings, uh, first, uh, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, you will flip through there and every single one of them walked in a sin that's called the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who was the very first king of these 19, and all of them were bad. Now the 20 kings of Judah... 20 kings of Judah, not all of them were bad. There were six or seven of them that were, that, that were either pretty good or who were okay or who were really great. There's about, only about six or seven of them. Two of them were the best kings Judah had, and they were Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah, and hang with me in this, I promise this is going to make sense. I hope it'll make sense if I explain it right. Hezekiah and Josiah led the nation of Judah in two of the greatest revivals, national reform that we see in the entire Old Testament. Hezekiah and Josiah. And do you know who Hezekiah's son was? Was Manasseh. Manasseh was right in the middle of Hezekiah and Josiah, the best kings of Judah. He was right in the middle. And listen, Manasseh was the worst king in all of Judah. His dad was Hezekiah. His grandson, who pretty much reigned right after him, were the best kings of Judah. Manasseh was absolutely the worst of them all. I honestly, I could make a case that Manasseh was even worse than Ahab. I, I, think, I think I could make a case that Manasseh was the worst king in the entire Old Testament. He was just bad. He did some evil, evil things. The problem with this is all of these guys, these kings, they were supposed to lead in their kingship in a certain way that would foreshadow Christ, who is now our prophet, priest, and king. We don't have a, There's no king over God's people anymore. Not on earth. There's a king in heaven. There's no priest over God's people anymore. He's, Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our prophet. There's no more prophets. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our king. In the Old Testament, those three roles pointed towards Christ. There is no one, I don't believe, who failed at this more than Manasseh. Manasseh just was bad, horrible, terrible, evil, 
all that you want to say about him, uh, only, rivaled by a, only rivaled by Ahab, possibly. And it, listen, it wasn't that he was incompetent. It wasn't that he didn't know how to rule. It was the fact that he was intentionally evil. And not just that, it wasn't just enough for him personally to be intentionally evil. He intentionally led the nation towards evil. He intentionally led God's people into idolatry. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's look at some of his, uh, let's look at, and I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're like, no, wait just a minute. We're going to study a prayer by this guy? Yes, we are. But first, let's look at his excessive evil. Manasseh uh, and, is, is, uh, and what he did is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1 through 9. Look at this. He's, he's a young guy. When, how, how would you like a 12-year-old uh, to be leader of the nation? Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. This is the longest tenured king out of all the 20 kings of Judah in the Old Testament. And he reigned, excuse me, uh, uh, verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations. All those idol worshipers that God wanted out of the land. Manasseh basically adopted their practices. And it goes on to say what he did. Verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal. He didn't just worship Baal, this false fertility god. He actually built altars for Baal and also for Asherah. And the Bible says, I mentioned Ahab a minute ago, the Bible says, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. In other words, he was just as bad, and I would even say worse, than Ahab. And he worshiped all the hosts of heaven. This is not talking about the God of heaven. This is talking about all the idols. This is talking about worshiping stars and moon. And this is talking about idolatry. And look at what he did in verse 4. If this wasn't bad enough, in verse 4, says, He built altars in the house of the Lord, and not an altar to the Lord. He built altars for Baal, and he built altars for Asherah, these false gods, these idols, he built altars for them in the temple of the Lord. And, and I won't read all of this to you, but it basically goes on to say that, look what he did. He burned his son as an offering. He used fortune-telling and omens. He dealt with mediums and necromancers. I mean, this guy was pure evil in his idolatry. If I were to describe to you, and you can go do the research for yourself, if I were to describe to you right now in your hearing, in this place, all of the despicable practices, as the Bible calls them, that the, uh, the idolatry of the nations called for, if I described them to you, you would cover your ears, you would cover your children's ears, you would say, "Don't we don't want to hear that, you would leave. If I tried to describe to you those despicable practices that, uh, that he did. But the worst thing that he did is found in, this, in, in, uh, in verse 9. Uh, in verse 9, it said, He led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. In other words, 
he filled, he filled the land with more idolatry than the people who were... He, he made it worse than it was. He made idolatry worse than the, the pagans that were there before the people of God showed up. And he led God's people astray. He led them astray. He led them astray to do all of these things. That's quite a resume of sin. I mean, you just, you just won't find another king of Israel. And I've, I've rec we've recently done a study on Wednesday nights of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings on Wednesday nights. You won't find a king that is described like this as being so idolatrous and so despicable and so evil. And you would think to yourself, well, what does a guy like that deserve? What, is, what does a guy like that deserve? What would, be the, what would be the consequences for leading people astray like that? What does, what does he deserve? What is God going to give him as a result of his sin? And this is where it gets really sad. The, the worst consequences of Manasseh's sin were not placed on Manasseh. The worst consequences of Manasseh's sin fell upon the nation of Judah. Look at, the, look at 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 10 through 15, and we will read about Judah's irreversible consequences. Irreversible consequences. And basically what these verses say, these verses say that God is going to destroy Judah because of their idolatry, that he's going to bring disaster upon them. And he said, it's not just going to be a small disaster. It's going to be a disaster that's going to make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. They're going to be like, what? Are you, ki are you kidding me? It is going to be extreme disaster that God is going to bring. And he uses these images. He says, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Just like the scraps that are left on your plate that you no longer want, and you just wipe them off of the dish. God says, look, you have brought idolatry on this land, and I'm going to wipe you off of that promised land in which I had already put you. I promised I was going to give, you, give that to you, that land. I put you in that land. You've made it even worse, and now I'm just going to wipe you off of it like, like, uh, like, uh, like one wipes a dish. He says, I'm going to forsake the remnant of my heritage. He said, I'm going to make you prey and a spoil to your, to your enemies. God declares that this is going to happen. This is going to be a consequence that's going to fall upon Judah because of Manasseh. How many of you know that there's consequences for your sin? I mean, there's things that just are going to happen. And there are earthly consequences and there are eternal consequences. I think it's important that we distinguish between the two. There are eternal consequences for our sin. What I mean by that is that if you don't know Jesus, you have to pay for those eternal consequences. 
If you don't know Jesus as Savior, there's only one eternal consequence. It's universal for everyone who has ever committed a sin, which is everybody. There's a universal, eternal consequence for everyone who doesn't know Jesus. And that is eternity in hell forever and ever. That is the eternal consequence that is placed upon people who don't know Christ. Now the good news, for those of us who are Christians, you will never face that eternal consequence. Someone has faced the consequences of your sin on your behalf. And his name is Jesus. He died on the cross for your sin. And what he accomplished on that cross was to permanently and ultimately and forever remove the eternal consequence for your sin. Isn't that good news? I mean, you're never going to have to pay for it in eternity. You're never going to have to pay for any, listen, any sin that you have committed, any sin that you are committing, any sin that you one day will commit. The eternal consequence for that sin is gone if you know Jesus. And that is never going to change. That's the good news. The bad news is, is there are earthly consequences that you may have to face for your sin that you commit on, on the earth. And the really bad news is that if you commit a sin, or if somebody, let me put it like this, somebody else can commit a sin, and you may face eternal consequences because of their sin. Someone could steal from you or could kill you or could hurt you or could do something against you and the consequences of their sin is placed upon you and the Bible never says that God's going to protect us from those things all the time. But from our perspective, we ought to be thinking, now wait a minute, some of the worst consequences of, of evil and sin that I could create on this earth are bad things and sins that I do, and I may not pay an earthly consequence, I may get away with it, but somebody else might be completely damaged by it. I might steal something that somebody needs, and as a result, they can't pay bills, and they get evicted from their house, and maybe I never get arrested for it, and I get away. God sees... But there's, my point is, there's earthly consequences. You can't choose your consequences. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. You can't choose the damage that it may or may not do to others. You can't choose the damage that it may do to you. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. And wouldn't it be great if we could say, you know what? The evil that I do, I don't ever want it to hurt anyone. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Whenever we sin, it almost always damages other people. And Manasseh led Judah into an irreversible consequence. Prior to Manasseh, there was always the possibility say under Hezekiah, there was always the possibility that the nation of Judah could have a godly leader come along and lead them to national revival and they wouldn't be destroyed. But after Manasseh, God said, it's done. And this was so firm, this was so irreversible that even under Josiah, who came after Manasseh, who led the greatest revival ever in the Old Testament, it didn't matter. In 2 Kings chapter 23, look at this. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 25 and through verse 26. 
speaking about Josiah, Manasseh's grandson. So I'm, I'm skipping you forward ahead in time. It says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord. This is speaking about Josiah. No king like him, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Verse 26, still, the Lord did not turn from his burning great wrath because of Manasseh. Because of Manasseh. You say, wait a minute. I can't believe this. I mean, Josiah led them to repair the temple, and they found the book of the law, and he led them into revival. He read the law to the people. He renewed the covenant. He went on a rampage against idolatry. He undid everything that Manasseh did. He tore down all all that. He he undid all of that. Didn't matter. It was irreversible what Manasseh had done. And so in 2 Kings Chapter 24, when Nebuchadnezzar marched through the land of Judah and he destroyed Jerusalem, the Bible says it was for the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh is to blame for putting Judah in an irreversible position of judgment. What does Manasseh deserve? I mean, who cares what he prays, right? That guy's beyond redemption. I mean, anybody that would do that, anybody that would be so evil, anybody that would not just turn from the Lord, but, but just, just make the road wide and easy for everybody, for the whole nation to turn from the Lord. Man, I bet that guy's in hell. Right? Isn't that what we think? Man, that guy doesn't deserve anything. Man, that guy is probably beyond redemption. God would never hear a prayer from that guy. And this is, this is where God's grace just defies all logic. Look at what happened to Manasseh while he was still alive. He, listen, he was the worst type of person. The worst type of leader. The worst type of king. But he prayed a type of prayer that God heard and that God responded to. Look at what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10 through verse 32. It says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they, they didn't pay any attention. In other words, they kept going in their idolatry. It says, therefore the Lord, he kept his promise. He brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. He captured Manasseh with hooks and he bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And you know, a lot of the times when someone is hard-hearted, it doesn't matter what happens in their life. It doesn't matter what kind of distress they have, what kind of sickness is going on, what kind of problems that they have in life. A lot of times when a person's heart is hard, sometimes it just really doesn't matter the difficulties. They just don't turn to the Lord. Manasseh did. It says, when he was in distress, talking about Manasseh, when he was in distress, he prayed a type of prayer. He entreated the favor of the Lord. He entreated 
the favor of the Lord. That, that describes a certain type of prayer, a prayer where he humbled himself. And the Bible says God was moved. How would you like for your prayers to do that? How would you like to pray in a certain way that God would be moved? And look, and it says God was moved by what? His entreaty. See, there's that word again. By his entreaty. And he heard. He heard his plea. And he, he brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. And you know what Manasseh did? Manasseh got rid of all of his idolatry. Manasseh actually brought about some reforms in the nation. It didn't matter. His earthly consequences were set in motion. But the man himself, the man himself, was what he prayed in a certain way, and God restored him. He entreated the Lord. That is a certain type of prayer, the word entreat. I've described this to you before. It means to feel pain. It means to grow weak or fall sick. It means to, to seek something so desperately that you become exhausted and worn down. If all of you have done this at some point in your life, at some point in your life, all of you have entreated after something. You have, you have gone after money or you have gone after sin or Maybe something bad has happened in your life and you have fallen exhausted and sick over a problem. What if we prayed to the Lord like that? What if, our, the, what if the position of our hearts spiritually was like this after God? Not, not trying to get God to fix our problem. That's what we're talking about. Some of you might say, well, I've just been sick in, in prayer over this problem that I have. No, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about you entreating the Lord himself. That you want, you want God. You don't care anymore if he fixes your problems. You don't care anymore if he answers a, a prayer for earthly consequence. It, that, that's not even in view anymore. You just want God himself, and you're seeking him so hard. You are seeking him so desperately that you begin to actually feel pain and grow weak because you've been praying so much. I believe this is the type of prayer that moves God. And Manasseh was personally restored because he prayed in this way, even though he had done irreversible damage to the nation of Judah. And the earthly consequences were not going to be taken away. The earthly consequences were not going to be remo removed, but Manasseh himself, I believe his eternal destiny was changed. I personally believe that the worst king that Judah has ever had, and perhaps the worst king in the entire Bible, I believe he's in heaven today because his heart changed. And because God heard his prayer. By the way, this is not the only time in Scripture that we see this type of prayer. We could look at Zechariah chapter 8, verse 21, and there's that word again, entreat the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5, basically talks about a prayer that Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, prayed. And uh, he entreated the Lord, and the Bible says that God heard him. Ezra chapter 8, this takes us forward in the, in the timeline to whenever after Jerusalem was destroyed and they experienced captivity, and they came back to the promised land. God was gracious. He brought them back to the promised land. And the Bible says that they sought the Lord and that the Lord listened to their entreaty. There's that word again, entreat the Lord. 
And unfortunately, sometimes it takes bad circumstances in life to, 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 to impel us to entreat the Lord. I pray all the time. I'm like, Lord, please don't, please don't make it my life. I don't want to be so stubborn that I require something bad to happen before I really entreat the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I've gotten off track and I need you. Let me, can't we just be people that just entreat the Lord? That just love Him and just pray for Him without something bad happen that forces us to pray? Can't we just, can't we just be people that pray? Can't we just learn and just train ourselves to pray in, a, in a, a, a type of prayer where we just love the Lord so much, we, we, we seek Him so hard, we don't have to have a difficult circumstance. We don't have to be swallowed up by addiction or going through a divorce or have a, have a bad diagnosis or get cancer or have someone close to us die or need something so desperately or be famished and starving and broke. Why, why do we have to need those things before we will seek the Lord with our whole heart? And here's the thing, if that's what it takes, then I pray that God brings all types of bad, horrible, terrible things in our life all the time so that we'll seek Him. But why can't, why can't we do it without those things? Why can't we just seek Him without there being hardship and just love Him because of who He is and because, he, because of what He's done for us? Why can't we pray like that all the time? Why are our prayers so lukewarm? Why do we come? Why, why is it so easy for us to become so complacent? And why is it? that people like Manasseh, who are the worst sort you can find, end up praying these prayers of the best sort available to us. Let me tell you something. This, this story about Manasseh, is, to me, it is just so encouraging. It is such good news because your life could be on fire right now because of bad things that you have done, but God will still hear your prayer. If he will listen to Manasseh, if, if the, the prayer of one of the most evil leaders to ever walk the face of the earth, if God will be moved by a prayer coming from that man, won't God hear you? You're not worse than Manasseh. I mean, we're all sinners. You're not worse than him. I don't know what you've been into this week. I don't know what you've been doing this week. I don't know what kind of sin you've been committing. I don't know what's been going on with you. I don't know what might be happening in your life right now, but I can tell you something. You are not worse than Manasseh, and God heard his prayer. We have to, but we have to position our heart to speak to God in a certain way to where he'll listen. You see, it's all about the heart. It's not about how well you articulate. You see, we tend to think, well, if I pray the right things, then God will listen. Not necessarily. We tend to think, well, if I become the right person first, then God will listen. Not necessarily. God responds to brokenness. God responds to humility. And when God sees that in your heart, when God sees that passion and that pain and that drive for Him, that angst in your heart for Him, where you are desperate for Him, none of the other stuff matters. You might not even have to say a word. The, just the simple position of your heart can get a response from God. Even if you don't breathe a word in prayer, the position of your heart is what matters. 
Let me ask you some questions today. First off, where is your prayer life? Where is your prayer life? I find that we have to move towards this type of prayer. That it's not like we just hear a sermon on that type of prayer and we're like, yeah, I need to pray that way. And we fall broken on the ground and start praying that way. This is something that it takes time and prayer as we move in that direction and as we seek that type of prayer, as we seek to be that type of people. So where's your prayer life? The last thing I want to do, I don't want you to leave guilty. Oh, my prayer life is just so horrible, so terrible. Listen, I think I've made it clear. You can be as terrible as possible and God will still listen to you. We just, we just need to pray. We just need to learn to pray more. Where's your, where's your prayer life? And even more important than that, let me, ask, let me ask you this question. Have you ever really prayed this way? Have you ever really truly prayed with deep angst in your soul? If you haven't, it could be that you're not saved. I mean, this is the type of prayer that'll get you saved. And some of you can probably give testimony that, man, I came to a point in my life, I hit rock bottom, and I prayed to the Lord like this, and He saved me. This is, this is, this is how I got saved. No, no, this doesn't happen to everybody. Just a prayer of childlike faith is, is what saved. But if you're in a position right now to where your life is just broken and circumstances in life are really bad and you don't know the Lord, it's probably going to take this measure of surrender and this measure of prayer in order for God to respond. And here's, and here's the good news. The Holy Spirit of God will be there to help you and to guide your heart and to lead you to know who Jesus is and how to pray. And see, ultimately, this type of prayer, it's a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And you need to ask the Lord to do that. And maybe, maybe you need to be saved today. Maybe there's, maybe there's something bad going on in your life right now. It's not a maybe. There's something bad going on in so many lives right now and so many people around you. You know. I mean, you, you think about the people that you know in your life. And you think about all the bad things that are happening in their life and the bad things that are happening in your life. People that you know in this church or people that you know at work. I mean, I I I could look around this congregation and I could find so many people that have so many bad, terrible, hurtful things that are taking place in their life right now. Hard things, terrible things. Things that are just, things that are just eating you up inside. I mean, things, things that just hurt. Things that are bringing you about physical pain. Things that are bringing you about emotional pain. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. We're not, we're not immune to it. I wonder if today we could be like Manasseh. And we could say, that earthly distress that I have. I'm going to point it towards the Lord. I'm going to use it as a channel through which I entreat the favor of God. And I'm going to cry out to Him. And I'm not even going to care. I'm going to take my, I'm going to take my mind off of my earthly distress. And I just want the Lord. I just want Jesus. Maybe that's where you are today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right now. You can just bow your head and close your eyes. I don't know what you need to say to the Lord. I don't know what's going on in your life right now or what you need to do, but I know, I know for a fact that so many of us are going through so many hard and terrible bad things, so much distress. Listen, 
God will be moved by your prayer if you will entreat his favor. If you will call upon him and pray to him and talk to him. You spend a few minutes praying whatever you need to say to the Lord. If you need to be saved today, call on Jesus and then we'll sing.